what song? Keep mine. Okay. <laughs> cool. And this is is not not a podcast. And once again, we are going to be selecting a film and Mm -hmm. a book and a song. And a song. And thinking about them uh, with other things and trying to make a new thing from them. Um, I guess just to explain how it works, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, where we have a list of films and books and songs and things that we like or that we think are thematically rich I guess and we're going to use a random number number generator to uh, pick the ones that we're gonna talk about in this episode and then we're gonna go away and try and make something mm-hmm. so what you do you see or hear or witness in some way so, you know, we're all in it together, really, in this one. <laughs> it's a learning experience as much for us as it is for you. Okay, so what are we at? Uh, so I guess we're going to start with films slash TV. Okay. And I'm about to generate a number. <gasps> so yeah, Okay, the number so. three is opposite the film Mandy. What... Is the director's name? I can't recall. We should really have it like written in the list. Yeah. I will look it up right now. Oh, it's, it's Panos Cosmatis. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. Mandy's excellent. Yeah, I don't know. just start that again and pretend like we knew what the director was. Okay. So just be like... Oh. <laughs> okay, so um, you, you want to start from like... The number three is Mandy. No, no, okay. just like the, oh, okay. whatever you were going to say about the director. Oh, just okay. pretend like we had it written down and that I didn't just Google it. The entire intro to this podcast is going to be, we're not putting that in. Pretend like we had it <laughs> written down. <laughs> I just think it's weird if, I, if you're like, oh, what's his name? I'm like, I'm just going to Google it. And then there's like <laughs> some typing. I think it's fine. <laughs> It's the process. We're all friends here and collaborators. It's really, uh, Mandy uh, is a 2018 film directed by Panos Cosmatos, which we actually just saw. We just saw it last week. Like last weekend. Time. Yes. Um, on the anniversary of its release. So we must have enjoyed it an amount. Uh, um, yeah. It, I definitely it, enjoyed it. I possibly even more so the second time around I definitely enjoyed it more the second time around you may have like seen the trailer when it came out or heard about it Um, I think when it came out the buzz around it was just related to the fact that it was Nick Cage and it was a crazy role for him yeah but actually like that's not why we went to see it right no I'm not sure that I even knew Nick Cage was in the film when I 
want to see the first one. Yeah, I think it's one of those ones where I just like saw the trailer and was like, we gotta mm. see this. Because it's like extremely black metal. It's so black metal. Basically, it's like thinking with black metal as a film. Like It's black metal. It is black metal theory, like made manifest. I yeah. don't know if that's what Panos Cosmatos would say, but it... It's what we would say. <laughs> it so is thinking with black metal. I feel like it's also as though you're like hallucinating inside of like a Lisa Frank painting, visually speaking. There's so many colors. It's so, everything's so like drippy and shiny and mm-hmm. weird, like beautiful, incredibly weird uh, cinematography. Yeah. Well, um, I guess like for most of the film, every character is either stoned or dripping or super drunk yeah so you're just like in that mental state with them yeah at every point yeah because well yeah because certainly from a certain point like just everybody is tripping specifically on lsd it's set in the early 80s i want to say like 81 so LSD is obviously a factor there and it's like a big part of the plot as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's elements of kind of satanic panic. There's elements of kind of bizarre kind of evangelical cults. It is like, a, it is a really good film. Um, it's great. I'm like excited to I'm excited. do something with it. Yeah. Excited to think about it. Very curious to know what we're going to have to think about it with let's get this book up here and see oh God, what yeah, the okay. heck we're gonna have to reread or like consider it's number 10 number 10 and number 10 is this Legati thing that you put on the list. oh number 10 is Teatro Grotesco um the collection of Thomas Legati short stories Holy shit. Could there be a better combination with Mandy? Things are about to get body horror. Things are about to get fucking strange. Well, so I've never read this, so you're just going to have to talk about it. Right now? Well, tell us a bit more. Okay. Oh, okay. Teatro Tesco. I feel like I should know um, more about Ligotti than I do. Um... Thomas Ligotti, you may have heard of him because, like us, you got into True Detective when it was around. He's one of the authors cited as a kind of big source for Rust's uh, nihilistic mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, and like some of some of Rust's like uh, monologues are like directly lifted from his work, right? Yeah, so or like lifted and changed a little bit. Yeah, but are like directly paraphrased from his work. Specifically, he has other. Um, uh, non-fiction kind of theory books, especially um, Conspiracy Against the Human Race. He's a very pessimistic, I suppose, um, misanthropic figure. Um, and that definitely comes across um, in in his work. Um, and he's definitely a, a kind of a titan of kind of contemporary word fiction, I would say. Mm-hmm. But I just know that I really like his stuff. And Teatro Grotesco especially is like wild and I think from what I've read, there's a kind of, there is a black metal kind of seam running through it, especially there's one story involving um, remembering being very ill as a child and the kind of like 
essential coldness of the world, kind of realizing that as it relates to one's own misanthropy. But also there's stuff about artists kind of transfiguring their bodies. I don't know how to get into it. It's weird. It is somewhat horrific, but also depressing. Um, so I guess we're about to do a song. Okay. Okay. Da, 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 da. Number 14, which is... Oh my god. Um, so it's, um, this song's, um, Pinball by, uh, Brian Prothero. One of Brian Prothero's two really good songs that he hates being known for. Um, that's completely ridiculous. And I, I, I think it's one of those kind of free association songs in terms of lyrics where it kind of seems to suggest the, uh, the first of kind of going insane. I don't know. Should bang it on for a second there? Yeah, well, we play a little bit for... Our listeners at home. And I've run out of pale ale And I feel like I'm in jail And my music bores me once again and I've been on the pinball And I no longer know it all And they say that you never know When you're insane Got fleas in the bedroom That was quite a video. Mm. Yeah, so if um, anybody hasn't heard Pinball with Brown Prother, I would recommend just like pausing and like uh, listening to it, especially if you have the option to uh, watch the strange... Um, homemade pictorial video that uh, we found on YouTube. Yeah, which is just a nice uh, visual representation of the lyrics um, so that you can really, you know, take them in. Uh, I feel like it's got some, some vibes that kind of go with Mandy a little bit. Yeah. Especially the, maybe the first half of the song. Um, yeah. Like it is from like 74. Yeah. There's definitely some folksy, you know, stoner vibe happening. Yeah, yeah. So interested to see if we can make that one work. It definitely like has a vibe. It's like at odds somewhat with Ligotti, but definitely the sense of creeping madness is one that all three texts share this week, yes, I think. Yes, for sure. Yeah. And that's probably enough to go on. Yeah. Uh, so that's our, our three. We've got, we've got Mandy, we've got Teatro Grotesco, and we've got Pinball. Okay, so I think that last time we picked our things. We mm. picked Mandy, we picked Teatro Grotesco, and Pinball. We're just going to kind of recap. 
yeah, just like give a little bit more information than we had the first time that we brought them up and uh, and then get into just kind of discussing them and discussing kind of what they made us think of. Yeah. Will we do Mandy first or Tiesco Tesco? Um, we can do Mandy. <laughs> Mandy is a film directed by Panos Cosmatos. I think that's how you say his name. It's uh, basically set in the Pacific Northwest in 1983 and its blurb goes outsiders, Red Miller and Mandy Bloom, need a loving and peaceful existence when their pine-scented haven is savagely destroyed by a cult led by the sadistic Jeremiah Sand. Red is catapulted into the phantasmagoric, mm-hmm. phantasmagoric, phantasmagoric yeah. journey filled with bloody vengeance and laced with fire. Which is like pretty accurate. It's pretty accurate. I mean, overall. I feel like Panos Cosmatos did not write that blurb though, because no. it's very pine scented haven. Yeah. Uh, sounds like a candle advertisement. Like. Yeah, not really, not really the vibe. Pine scented. But anyway. Well, I guess they just like live around pines. They do live right? in a pine forest. Yeah. yeah because he yeah. works. Yeah. In a pine forest. Yeah. He's a lumberjack. It's really something. <laughs> so. I totally forgot that his name was Red. I was like fully coming into this episode about to be like, yeah, Nick Cage's character is unnamed. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, he's got a name. Yeah, his name's Red. Red. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's like um, pretty well received by critics overall. I think it's got like ninety eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. Um, but its audience score is like sixty percent or something. <laughs> um and as I found out it's it had a budget of six million but it only made one point four million at the box office. Jesus. It's Which, pretty mm. Yeah. God, it's a real shit and if you like I feel like the audiences it did get were like so engaged. Yeah, like it's so it's got like a really big cult following now, I guess. Like so I think we said in the when we picked it, that like we'd just been to see it for the second time. Yeah. We went to like a a one year anniversary screening, and it was like booked out. Booked out. People were laughing. People yeah. were shouting. People, you know, people we were, were having the time of their lives. Really loving it. <laughs> but yeah, it seems to just like really have that cult following, and didn't do very yeah. well outside of that. I wonder which how... is like understandable. Yeah, I mean, but. it's it's a, it's an acquired taste, mm. I would say, for sure. Mm. Um, so that is most of the information I've gathered. Um, it's scored by Johan Johansson, who actually, like, died in February 2018 before the film came out. And he's, like, a really well-known film scorer. Yeah, I was listening to the score the other day while I was researching it and like mm. it was all these other things and then like the theory of everything came up and I was like what's going on here? Yeah. But he's, he's just scored everything. He's done Arrival and Sicario as well and I think he's won like awards for for Sicario at least. Mm. Um and it's it's a good score. Yeah. And it's got uh Nick Cage obviously in sort of the lead role and then Andrea Riseborough in the title role. Yeah, as Mandy. Um, who, yeah. She's like very good in it, obviously. She's excellent. And it also has, uh, I mean, I don't know why I brought this up because I can't pronounce her name. An Irish actress, so good. Alwyn. Mm. 
I'm gonna say Ferrari. You can you can say it wrong one way, and I'll say it wrong another way. <laughs> I want to say it's Fuer. Fuer is probably sounds better. Sounds more like a name. Um, but I have seen her in stage stuff before, and she's so good. And mm-hmm. she was in Jesse Jones Tremble Tremble, and she just has such a presence. And she's playing this like horny old woman in the cult. And she's so good. So good, and she's got like such a good face as well. Oh my god! Just like what an incredible looking person. Yeah. Okay, so that's Mandy. So then, Teatro Grotesco. Uh, we've now both read. I've that was probably my two and a half for like third time reading it. Um, I have a bit of information. I have way less information than I thought because I just went straight into like reviews and like interviews and stuff. So I don't have a huge amount of um bibliographic information but I just like looked up his bibliography and I cannot read it to you because like it's simply too long like I was like oh his collections and I was just gonna read them it was like Songs of a Dead Dreamer in 1985, Grimscribe, His Lives and Works, The Agonizing Resurrection of Victor Frankenstein and Other Gothic Tales, The Nightmare Factory, In a Foreign Town and a Foreign Land and then Teatro My Work is Not Yet Done, Shadow at the Bottom of the World, then you re-release Teatro then there's the spectrum. then we get into his omnibus works. So, like, I guess it's just fair to say that he's fairly prolific. He, it is. It's kind of bizarre because it is, he is fairly prolific. But what I kind of, um, what kind of came across in the interviews with him is that he, so he essentially has um, manic depression mm-hmm. and he only writes when he's manic. But he's been on mood stabilizers for a really long time now. So it's not right. clear whether he still writes. Um, okay. Because... It, we'll kind of get into this because it's incredible. Like interviews with him are amazing, and he kind of s- seems quite forthcoming. But like, yeah, that he he has kind of anhedonia. Like that he has this problem, has this kind of absence of emotion um, right. um, uh, about stuff. Um, so yeah, so here's like a little bit of kind of biography for him from this interview with him in Teeming Brain. Uh, it's an interview by Matt Carden. It's really good. So he had his first anxiety attack. Um, when he was 17 and that led to this like mental breakdown and that was kind of the defining incident of his life and it informs all his writing it's informed his entire worldview since then mm-hmm. because as far as he was concerned that revealed this like underlying horror of the world right that he got a glimpse of like the real world right during right. this during this mental breakdown mm-hmm. yeah and then he says since 2001 all of his stories have been written while he's in a hypomanic state between long bouts of depression mm-hmm. and the themes have actually responded to his experiences so in the case of Teatro Grotesco uh, there's a couple of stories about like the workplace like mm-hmm. my case for retributive action and supervisor and he worked in an office for a really long time mm-hmm. and yeah they were like outpourings of his frustration with like office life um, and then supposedly Purity and The Town Manager which are another two stories in the collection mm-hmm. uh, were as he says my enraged reaction to social and political developments in the US at that time so another thing he says is um, so I guess there's an observable pattern in that I write when something in my life pushes me to do so specifically hatred and hurt these act as a springboard for the themes of my stories, which I hope transcend my temporary experience and connect with my overall outlook on existence, which may or may not interest the reader, but is the essential reason that I write. So a lot of uh, criticism around Ligotti is that his work doesn't have plots, right? Mm-hmm. It's not very plotty. Uh, there's not even a lot of characters. 
Sometimes Correct. there not very much happens. Correct. Um, but he, as far as he's concerned, that doesn't, that's just not what interests him in stories. Yeah. Like he likes stories where the author makes their worldview the kind of central character and the central theme. Mm-hmm. And so that's what he responds to. So he's a big fan of Lovecraft. He's a big fan of Poe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that comes across. Yeah, I think that's extremely clear from this collection. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would say, I would recommend the collection to people, but I wouldn't recommend reading it like we did all in a month. Like, honestly, no. just dip in for a story and dip out. It's just too depressing, and it's yeah. just like bleakness that never ends. Yeah, it's yeah, extremely bleak and like extremely <laughs> samey mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. But I feel like you kind of you get to a point where you're like, oh, I'm sick of this. And then it like comes back. And then for the end of the book, it could just be that some of the stories are a bit like weaker than others. Yeah. Because I feel like come the end when it gets slimier again. Yeah. I think like, or well, maybe we'll get into it more later. But like part of my problem with the the book or the way like the stories are arranged in this collection is like they seem to have grouped the similar ones together instead of spacing them out. And so you have like three or four stories in a row that are like, about like art and artists but like in different kind of ways but like in a lot of very repetitive ways Mm -hmm. and it gets very like it's like okay i get i get the point you're trying to make i think i don't need to read another story about this yeah whereas like if those were spaced out or maybe if they Mm. were in different collections yeah well i think that this actually is a collection of a few different smaller collections so Mm -hmm. like it kind of comes across because there's a section in a foreign town in a foreign land which has three or four stories and then sideshow has kind of three short stories mm. um but it does really if you're not enjoying a part it's kind of like yeah it does drag like... now all you do some people might hate it have if you read any interviews with him i feel like you have to respect it in this interview the teeming brain interview he gives a description for why his stories have no characters or no plots and it is in my opinion the best quote of all time so i'm just gonna read it fully <laughs> He says, most writers adore observing other people and the lives they lead, then making up a story about them. They really pay attention to the world around them. This is something I literally can't do. I just don't care about what makes people tick. And as Sherlock Holmes said, I see but do not observe. It just seems completely trivial and useless to pay attention to these things. I'm no more interested in the physical universe, which sends scientists into raptures of rhetoric, but doesn't impress me in the least. I can't fathom why anyone should care about how the universe began, how it works, or how it will end. More triviality and uselessness. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's amazing. We simply have no choice. <laughs> <laughs> we simply must stand. <laughs> Incredible. Like I can't fathom why anyone should care about how the universe began, how it works, or how it will end. More triviality and uselessness. Yeah. Like, well, I feel like that is very clear yeah. in his collection. Yeah. Well, if that's his aim, is to like make if to make that viewpoint clear. Yeah. Completely achieved. He's done it. Um, Good job. So that yes, yeah, so then I don't I don't know how how relevant this is, but um, it just reminded me of um of Mandy in a way in terms of the kind of like heightened emotion sometimes present in Mandy. Mm-hmm. So he was talking about the the anhedonia that he feels well when in melancholic depression. So he feels like he can't he can't produce. He's no he literally has no impulse to produce because mm-hmm. he has no emotion. Um, but like 
he supports this by essentially saying that doing things is stupid, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So he says, if you're going to do anything, you must be in an irrational state of emotion. And without this irrationality, your life is just numbers. How long, how much, how many, how far. Emotion gives an illusory focus and meaning to our lives. When the feeling is gone, so is that sense. This sense is a motivator, yet it also fools you into thinking that something is important when it's not in the least important, except as an engine for your meaningless life. Um, I really people must read this interview. Like even if you don't read yeah, this work, it's so it in, good. Like, the... the show notes, yeah. yeah, we certainly will. So, but did he always have this condition? Possibly not. He seems to have always had um, kind of manic depression, or at least since kind of age seventeen. But mm-hmm. it seems like the bouts of depression in between the manic states are kind of getting longer. Right. Uh, and he also has. Oh, yeah, this is actually crucial to mention that he also has uh, like irritable bowel syndrome. It's possibly even possibly Crohn's. He has ext- mm-hmm. like he has big gastrointestinal problems that yeah. are also stress related. And so he, when I say that this is an anxious person, like he's his life is defined by anxiety even more so than most people's. Yeah, and for him, the stomach stuff is completely related to that, and it totally comes up in the in the collection yeah it comes up a lot um in like three or four different stories yeah the, the characters have like these stomach problems that are like precursors to a sort of interaction with the the other or like whatever he describes it as like the horror of, of being yeah i think i think that's really key and i don't think we need to even like justify that this is a relationship between anxiety and nausea i think most people no, will like know yeah. know that intuitively but I also I really enjoy you know bringing this like mental thing into this like really physical really relatable you know mm-hmm. um uh phenomenon you know mm-hmm. yeah I mean maybe just like to explicate slightly you know without you know giving like too many spoilers or whatever but just like to give a sense of the type of characters and stories that are in Teatro Grotesco first of all mm-hmm. there is a lot of small towns there's a lot of clowns there's a lot of kind of circus vibes Mm -hmm. there's a lot of failing artists who work in like bizarre media Mm -hmm. there's a lot of failing brothels but like not not in any sort of indulgent way they're literally just alluded to Mm -hmm. yeah so that's the kind of general mise-en-scene of that and then in Mandy what we're talking about is like these two like protagonists who seem to like metal like that's just a site they just do right yeah. it's just part of the plot um they live in the woods he works in the woods and then the other two groups of people that are in it are this cult led by jeremiah sands mm-hmm. who's this kind of thwarted folk singer who's running this like cult of ego about himself and he has this crazy song um because jeremiah sands was a righteous man um (laughs) and he has these followers and they're all on some sort of drug um which is like it's taken from these like insects Mm -hmm. um and then there's also these bikers who i don't want to say like they are satanic do you know what i mean whether or not they like worship satan or whatever they're kind of coded in this way that they're like this kind of hellish gang 
yeah that that are that basically are also drug addicted mm-hmm. but like LSD addicted and one day had this bad batch that has essentially pushed them into this like superhuman bizarre like post-human yeah existence yeah. and they like do crimes for people in exchange for blood I guess like it's bizarre um, just to be clear just so that we're not like oh it's just like you know just like it's really it's totally nuts and yeah. like it, most of the film involves Nick Cage going on a rampage against these bikers and, yes. and against the cult um, and having to take them down in like ridiculously over the top ways yeah. cool so what did you what stories really stood out to you so mostly actually like the second half of the book is where I started seeing I guess relations with Mandy so mm-hmm. those are the ones that I kind of took note of okay I mean in terms of stories that actually stood out to me like separate to that mm-hmm. is uh, the clown puppet one mm-hmm. um, just because I find the description of the clown puppet like deeply terrifying and upsetting and so in that story there's like this guy who's like throughout his life basically visited by this clown puppet what does he call like the incidents uh i think he names them after wherever they occur yeah and he calls them something like uh oh he calls them visits yeah so he so in this case he's he's working a medicine shop and he calls it the medicine shop visit yeah there's like some quote where i can't find it now but he's like my life has always been surrounded by yeah incidents of complete nonsense i have it here actually it's so good he says who knows how many others there were who might say that their existence consisted of nothing but the most outrageous nonsense a nonsense that had nothing unique about it at all and that had nothing behind it or beyond it except more and more nonsense a new order of nonsense perhaps an utterly unknown nonsense but all of it nonsense and nothing but nonsense every place i've been in my life was only a place for puppet nonsense it's like it's just such a good quote like i mean if you're looking for bleak quotes this is the book yeah. for you oh chalk a block with, with bleak quotes yeah yeah and no, then i think that might have been my favorite one yeah that's good and that's right after sideshow and all of sideshow really lays out that it that same philosophy now i mean all of his stuff lays out the same philosophy but specifically that nugget is also laid out in the three preceding stories you know, all of life is nothing but show business and worse, nothing but side show business is kind of the, that it's like, it's not just a charade, it's like a pointless, stupid charade. Yeah. Like, um, but you thought that the the ones in, I suppose, in The Damaged and the Diseased or just like from In a Foreign Town and a Foreign Land onwards? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess In a Foreign Town and a Foreign Land, The Bungalow House, mm-hmm. Severnini. Severini, yeah. Severini. <laughs> Um, and obviously the shadow of the darkness. Yes. But I liked this, like similar to that kind of quote about um, nonsense and stuff. Mm-hmm. I liked from in a foreign town in a foreign land, even in a northern border town of such intense, intensely chaotic oddity and corruption, there was still some greater chaos, some deeper insanity than one encountered on, or could ever be taken into account. Where there was anything, there would be chaos and insanity to such a degree that one could never come to terms with it. 
and it was only a matter of time before your world, whatever you thought that to be, was undermined, if not completely overrun, by another world. Um, which I feel like really relates to... Oh, completely. To totally, yeah. Um, yeah. In the, in the kind of way that, like, it's like, so Red and Mandy obviously live in this sort of cabin... Yeah, like they're already like, like removed, isolated yeah. from the world. Like they're like so off grid, and like you definitely get the impression that like that's an intent intentional move from like some sort of chaotic previous life that they've had. Because like Mandy has this like scar kind of on her mm-hmm. face as well that like Andrea Riceberry doesn't have in real life. So it's obviously some kind of you know you're supposed to read something into that. Yeah, she tells um, this quite disturbing story about her childhood. Yeah, um, about her dad and like murdering this bag of birds or something yeah it's it's really really distressing and so like they obviously have like um removed themselves and tried to make like this safe haven for themselves and she is also like reading a lot of like sword and sorcery books Mm -hmm. like so she's like they're already inhabiting like visually and like textually inhabiting this kind of like strange kind Mm -hmm. of other world Mm -hmm. and then obviously they're you know, their pine-scented haven is disrupted. Um, and it becomes like, you know, the second half of the film is such this, this like, like, yeah, insane romp. to get into and I'm like not smart enough to talk about this but like I wanted to it was interesting to me and I just like I couldn't get what I wanted I couldn't find what I wanted to find about it yeah um so like I said these things are like really black metal and it's like hard to know what that is it's just you know it when you see it or you know when you experience it and that's because Mm -hmm. black metal theory is a phenomenological approach right rather than an ontological approach yeah. So if you don't know what phenomenology is, that's okay. Barely do I. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like literally, here's the description of Google. It really should just like clarify it. Mm. So phenomenology is the science of phenomena as a thing from that of the nature of being. So it's phenomenology versus kind of ontology. So uh, it's an approach that concentrates on the study of consciousness and the objects of direct experience. Um, and so that was developed by Edmund Husserl in the in the 20th century and so black metal theory is about experience it's about the experience of hearing black metal and thinking with yeah. that as opposed to what can you say factually about the making of it a lot of people have got into this like china Evil, like david roden like endless people have got into uh, weird fiction there is an experience reading it like that's what it does it evokes a feeling it evokes an atmosphere yeah and like that's definitely what Ligotti does as well yeah and is i th- that where you're going that is what I, that is where i'm going and it, but also mandy does it to this like the reason that like mandy is so special like it's not just a horror movie mm. is because it creates this atmosphere and it's using all of the tools at its disposal not just plot to do that yeah visually it's incredible like yeah. it's doing these incredible things with like vintage lenses it's got like flare it's got blur it's, it's some of the mm. there's this one there's a scene where jeremiah sands first sees mandy and becomes obsessed with her and i don't know whether it's shot on night vision it's like incredibly grainy it's all red yeah like it's so unnatural and it doesn't necessarily it doesn't have a 
uh, textual, it just has an emotional meaning, the red, you know what I mean? It's not mm-hmm. like there's a storm going on or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, so it's using that, it's using literally the lenses, it's using the animated parts. It's got title chapters throughout it that evoke kind of sword and sorcery and evoke like metal music covers. Yeah. And it's like so metal and so about metal, but the music in it isn't metal. The music in it is like dark ambient music. Um, mm-hmm. This like score by Jonas, um, Jonas Johan Johansson. And um, that's, I don't know, it was interesting to me because so where, where my mind went was that dark ambient can like take the place of metal music and still create a metal movie because it creates the same emotional response sure. when combined with the other visual elements yeah whereas metal has lyrics and it has other ways to do that so i went down this like phenomenology hole right so i was looking for music stuff but what i found was and i said by stephen craig hickman on um thomas Ligotti, dark phenomenology and abstract horror so he starts with um this quote from Thomas Agati, not from a story from this collection, but from his story called The Dark Beauty of Unheard of Terrors, which may actually be an essay, I'm not 100% certain. He says, emotion, not mind, is the faculty for hearing the secret voice of the story and apprehending its meaning. Without emotion, neither story nor anything else can convey meaning as such, only data. But I think that's what you get from, like, Teatro Grotesco. You know, there's no, like you say, like, there's not really, there's kind of plot, but like, not really like the whole thing is about atmosphere and like creating like it's quite like a depressive atmosphere Mm. throughout you know and kind of like the stories just really give you like this creepy feeling even though like some of the stuff in it isn't so you know isn't like creepy on its own Mm. but yeah well that's it i think that's why some people consider it like weird rather than horror because Mm it's not explicitly horrific but it is like it is a depressive feeling like the idea of a soft voice whispers nothing like you read it when you want somebody to confirm that you're right and life has no meaning yeah you know (laughs) and that like maybe there's some order but it's like some horrifying order that we can't access you know well i guess like for me that's also why i found it so repetitive Mm. and like i would agree like not to read the whole thing at once yeah um because it's just like the the message of every story is that like that everything is is pointless and you know I'm just like yeah I don't mm. you don't need to tell me yeah. <laughs> that's the thing is like, because we're the most receptive <laughs> audience to it maybe we're also like yeah okay I get it like yeah um, Stephen Craig Hickman uh, set is talking about the kind of like alienation that results from weird tales and realizing that everything's bullshit you know mm-hmm. and that there's like this darker thing going on. He says, and as you wander through your daily existence, everything becomes more spectral, more ghost-like, as if reality were giving way to another world, as if the protection zones that defended you from knowing too much, of feeling too much, were coming down, and this other order of existence were invading your life, your mind, and the natural world around you in subtle ways that you could not directly perceive with your senses, but could only feel with your uncanny sense, your emotions and affective relations. I feel like that's like, really gets at it, and really comes, Mandy becomes when I look at it that way yeah it's like there's emotion and in this case it's kind of interesting in the case of Mandy it's like it's this like love or kind of passion or like love or something Mm -hmm. and it invites in this like real darkness Mm -hmm. um and like this other order this like 
these bikers, these bizarre kind of post-human like monsters. Yeah. Because love creates this possibility for loss, you know. Yeah. And then it's like you still have to fucking fight them. Do you know what I mean? Everything's mm-hmm. been turned on its head, and yet you still just gotta like fight your way out with a huge sides. Yeah, I feel like there's actually a bit in the actual story, Teatro Grotesco, mm. which kind of relates to that, um, where he's talking about, so the teatro is kind of like this mysterious, um, kind of like a traveling cult as well. Yeah, they call um, the Cruel Troop. So it, to- yeah. it totally le- ties in with the bikers. Like, yeah, yeah. they kind of go around... Um, they kind of introduce themselves to artists and then the artists like meet the teatro and then the ultimate outcome of that is that the artist stops creating work. Yeah. And so the protagonist in, in this story is trying to manifest a, an encounter with the teatro because he wants to know what happens I guess, mm. when you meet them. And so he starts telling everyone that he's like written this story. He's written this like uh, analysis or whatever of the teatro that's like tearing down all of their what yeah. would you call what, it? I don't know their philosophy or yeah, whatever like. yeah but he like he hasn't written it at all he's just trying to get them to <laughs> to contact him yeah um, but there's a great bit where it's like well, I've like taken out some of this because it's really long but an encounter with any disease serves to alter a person's mind this mind cannot remain altered once the encounter is ended in contrast, an encounter with the teatro appears to remain within one system and to alter a person's mind permanently. So I feel like it's like that encounter like with the cult and then with the bikers has that effect of um, like that kind of breaking down the walls that like Red and Mandy have built mm. sort of to protect themselves. And like, yeah, like we said, like the second half of the film is is Nick Cage on sort of this revenge field. Yeah. Uh, you know, and he has like completely lost his mind. Yeah, and like, he does take like their spiked LSD really yeah. early into that. So like, yeah. he becomes in their world and it's really clear that at the end of the film he doesn't get to leave that world just because he has lived to the end of the film. Yeah. And that just, it, it struck me with the same you know, I feel like in Teatro Grotesco, he uses that like illness and anxiety are the are the onset of this like change in perception. Mm-hmm. But it's the same. It's like a physical change that like you can't come back from. Yeah. In the case of like a bad trip or, you know, that it creates this like physiological change that actually changes reality. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And that actually happens like in the the Shadow of the Darkness story as well. The kind of artist who isn't the protagonist, um, he has like a art exhibition and then he collapses. Like through that collapse, he like has to go to the hospital and then in the hospital he kind of gets like taken over by this, you know, unhuman being that infects his his human body and makes him kind of unhuman. But it it seems to be like because of the collapse and like the disease or whatever that he has that he's like opened himself to this Mm. and then kind of at the end of the story you find out that he's given all of his friends the stomach illness through like feeding them like bad food or something Mm. and then they all also become exposed to this shadow the shadow of the darkness yeah which is like the only thing it's called in the story as far as I remember yeah it's (laughs) yeah I'm pretty sure that's what it's called and it's like it also seems I mean I don't 
you know, and I know that like I don't usually care about creator intent, but mm-hmm. it's impossible to disentangle Thomas Ligotti from his stories. Like you can't really take him out of there because yeah. he's put himself in them, especially yeah, in that he, last one. Yeah, he's basically the protagonist in every one, right? Um, yeah, in most of them, but especially in the last one, he's not only the protagonist, but he's also all the other characters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, like one of the other characters has written this book, Conspiracy Against the Human Race, yeah, which he's yeah, in the process of writing at the time that this comes out. Yeah. Um, and uh, that it seems to me like an a uh, like clear like um, description of the like anhedonia that he describes. That mm-hmm. that realization is this realization that everything's pointless and like the artists can't even. It seems like that they would want to like commit suicide, but it seems. That, that avenue isn't open to them mm-hmm. because everything's just pointless mm-hmm. um and i think there's this like strong image of like black snow falling in a black sky mm-hmm. that like color is totally sapped yeah from the world um it's actually like so funny like in that story there's a bit where he's like and obviously it's impossible to write any sort of investigation into the conspiracy against human race because like there is no conspiracy you know because there's no meaning or whatever but then like he does write that book in real life i'm pretty sure that's the conclusion of the book though spoilers for right, another okay. book yeah because <laughs> uh, yeah, it's funny because I, I i did think that and i thought that that was like the um i really thought that conspiracy against the human race was like this anti-natalist tract but again mm. i think that in that he goes i'm tempted to think we should all stop reproducing but that's obviously ridiculous you know so yeah, like he yeah. does he does know that his own kind of like pessimistic thoughts on this are like not feasible Mm -hmm. so just like to i think that this will lead us into slime uh if not we'll we'll get there if not we're gonna get there anyway so 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 basically like what you know anxiety teaches us what weird fiction teaches us what like that feeling teaches us that like the world is bullshit and the rules are bullshit and like culture is bullshit and Mm -hmm. so coming back to stephen craig hickman and his essay on dark phenomenology he says, against this humanistic world of thought and culture is the notion of the unhuman. With the unhuman, something comes back to haunt the human without it being fully integrated into humanity. In this respect, the unhuman is closely tied up with notions of alienation, anonymity, and the unconscious. So he's referring to the non-human world and the, you know, the world without us, cosmic horror kind of thing, mm-hmm. but also in how it's evoked in kind of villains in horror, like so vampires, werewolves, mm-hmm. um, this kind of unhumanity in humanity. Mm-hmm. And I think that really comes across in the bikers in Mandy. And they have this vibe like Severini, which is the second last story in um, Teatro Grotesco, mm-hmm. that they it's really unclear what the physical rules governing them is. They're called by this bizarre like kind of ritual this kind of lighting thing they can be killed but like really takes a lot yeah one of them when you first see him it's really not clear that he has kind of skin he's kind of wet Mm. he has this like just intrinsic wetness you know yes and it seems to be implied you know that it's a result of their kind of bad trip Mm -hmm. um that it's like affected their like physical being yeah yeah like they are like very slimy creatures kind of 
David Roden, um, he's like a prominent writer about posthumanism. He came, he was referenced by Stephen Craig Hickman like quite a lot. To be really clear, we know him personally, but also he does come up in this stuff. Like yeah. I did come across him naturally in my research anyway. So, but anyway, to get a little bit of his posthumanism in his book, Posthuman Life, and this is, I'm reading from like a briefer version of this, right? Mm-hmm. Like a four page kind of version of it. He says, I argue for a position I call speculative posthumanism. Uh, speculative posthumanism claims boldly that there could be posthumans, that is, powerful non-human agents arising through some human-instigated technological process. I've argued that the best way to conceptualize the posthuman here is in terms of an, in terms of agential independence or disconnection. Roughly, an agent is posthuman if it can act outside of the wide human, i.e., the system of institutions, cultures, and techniques which reciprocally depend on us biological humans or narrow humans. So, I mean, I feel like the bikers of money would definitely fall into kind of that category where they're disconnected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so then they act outside a system of institutions and cultures. And then he says more, to put some bones on this, it is conceivable there might be agents far more capable of altering their physical structure than current humans. I call an agent hyperplastic if it can make arbitrarily fine changes to its structure without compromising its agency or its capacity for hyperplasticity. Encountering H-paths, which is what he calls them, (laughs) might induce the mental or physical derangements that Lovecraft and Vandermeer detail lovingly. So that's H.P. Lovecraft and Jeff Vandermeer who wrote Mm. um, Annihilation and the the Southern Reach trilogy. So those are weird authors, right? So he's saying, encountering these hyperplastic agents that can change their bodies Mm. more than humans could induce mental or physical derangements in a human observer. He says, to read them, we might have to become more radically plastic ourselves. More like the amorphous, you know, disgusting creatures of Lovecraft, right? Yeah. So he says, our understanding of the post-human must be interpreted aesthetically. So operating without criteria or pre-specified systems evaluation, it begins instead with xeno-affects, xeno-aesthetics, and a subject lost for words. Which is like, I think... I hope that that makes some sense. It's just like... Mm. Can you explain like Xeno for people who might not... Yeah, it essentially means uh, outsider alien. So mm. it's like alien affects. So it's just like alien emotions, a feeling of something outside, mm-hmm. um, something you cannot describe or define. I was just like enamored with this idea of something that is like not only kind of able to change its physical form um, mm-hmm. and that that's like obviously something that is possible but it's really hard to like comprehend mm-hmm. um but like the idea that encountering it might induce mental or physical derangements and i think that that is what happens in mandy yeah definitely and like is also what happens in a lot of the stories in yeah that it's yeah and yeah with the, the title story teatro grotesco yeah you cannot have an encounter on your terms yeah and you yeah. cannot ever go back from having had the encounter yeah with this radically alien thing mm-hmm. that i don't think it's like ever described right no in the story like, yeah and there's kind of like uh i guess echoes of, of that in the severini story as well because like severini is described as a being who can like change its form again like never really described in any particular way but kind of like is described as this kind of 
Yeah, it says slimy. Um, yeah, it says consistently bodily changes were consistently ill-defined, not a matter of clear transformation as much as a breakdown of anatomical features and structures. Yeah, the result being something twisted and tumorous, like a living mound of diseased clay or mud. Um, and also, I that is a really slimy story. Like literally, mm. it gets to the end, and like the result is the terrible vision that exposed all living things, including myself, as no more than a fungus. Or a collection of bacteria, a yes. kind of monumental slime mold quivering across the landscape of this planet, and very likely others. Yes, I also have that quote written down. Because yeah, those last couple of stories, I guess, like it's is it Severini and then the the shadow, the shadow of the, of the darkness, are like extremely, extremely slimy stories and like immediately made me think of the slime dynamics book by ben woodard which was like when i was in college i guess one of the first books that i read kind of related to black metal theory and i was like oh i assume ben has like read this collection and like of course he has and of course like it's referenced in slime dynamics so like i guess the kind of overall idea of slime dynamics well i don't really know if it has an overall idea maybe it does it's kind of like just this idea that like again kind of related to the post-humanism thing that like humans are not beyond or or better than like any other kind of being right or like non-human entity mm-hmm. and like this idea that like we all kind of have emerged from just like this, you know, primordial slime. Mm. Um, and like it, it gets into a little, like gets into a little bit like what slime molds can actually do or are capable of. You know, like you can train slime molds to find like the fastest route through a maze and stuff like that, even though they don't have any like cognitive function. Yeah, um, they still can think as like a. A being I yeah. guess um, and it gets into sort of like you know swarms of insects can do the same thing um, and they have this like collective thought um, beyond their like mm. uh, individual thought um, yeah and I um, guess the like consciousness is not so special yeah exactly uh, I feel like like the Severini story and the Shadow of the Darkness are really like also on that same thought plane. For sure, um, yeah. There's kind of this part in the Severini story where like Severini like lives inside a swamp mm. and the protagonist has to like walk through the swamp to get there. Um and that's it's not it's a swamp but also it's like this tropical landscape and it's also kind of like a sore <laughs> It's very like yeah confusing description. Tropical sewer is what he keeps yeah. saying about it. Yeah. So it says like the quality of the tropical landscape shared much of the same kind of uh, darkly oozing ferment as the sewer aspect, with the added impression of the most exotic forms of life spawning on every side, things multiplying and also incessantly mutating, like a time lapse film of spreading fungus or slime molds totally unrestricted in their form and expansion. Yeah, the idea that Severini is like infecting, possibly not even like within malicious intent, but just like mm. as a as an organism. Yeah, you know? and like he definitely has that like 
uh, a plastic element. Yeah, the hyperplastic. Like David Rodenquote relates to. And then it kind of turns out at the end of the story that like Severini and the protagonist are like the same yeah. person. Yeah, when we talk about like this connection, it is like yeah. this person, in order to, for the consciousness to protect itself, it's had to physically separate itself from the disease. Yeah. And the disease essentially has a life of its own at Severini. Yeah, because basically it turns out he has this like, again, like kind of stomach. Yeah, he had or, he got dysentery in yeah, the Philippines. Yeah. It's totally wild. Don't know, like so much how that relates to Mandy is just like I found the the biker guys to be very like slimy. Like they almost just have this like natural drive mm. that isn't really backed up by any sort of rationality. Yeah, uh, or like human thought in the way that they're acting but yeah they, they take like a human form i well i think that there is like you can draw a parallel between the disease and the lsd as well that it's just like it's created created this kind of realization that kind of like removes ego and like you know has these kind of almost kind of on this on humanity in these like human or kind of post-human characters you know, yeah yeah that are just acting like a bacteria or you know yeah. or a slime you yeah know, and just exactly. um and you kind of have like them with sort of like this absence of ego and then you have like jeremiah sand who's just pure ego yeah and nothing else and you kind of have that contrast yeah. and then i guess you can get into from there the sort of mysticism links to mm. black metal and this sort of like how the Jeremiah Sand cult like sort of represents I guess like Christianity yeah right? and like red represents this sort of black metal uh yeah the kind like, of the satanism of second wave black metal yeah. that is like it's satan satanist in terms of it's anti-christian and it's anti exactly. the kind of false trappings of christianity well and it's just like the the kind of story of Mandy like it's definitely inspired by like the second wave black metal yeah by Norwegian like, black metal yeah. yeah there's like clearly a culturally black metal way to read it as well mm-hmm. as just like this eco kind of post-human yeah like it's explicit like I mean spoilers for Mandy but it ends in like a church burning yeah so like obvious black metal influences there yeah. you know Jeremiah Sands is like this hugely like parodic cartoonish uh version of like ego masquerading as Christianity yeah you know, he literally has like written albums full of songs about himself and how great he is, and like he <laughs> plays them, you know, like while kind of asking people to have sex with him. And then like, yeah, Red is this kind of like he just wants to live in the woods with his woman, mm-hmm. you know. But like when his when his home is threatened, he'll like carve a huge axe and like <laughs> destroy all these like fake Christians messing with his like pastoral life yeah um let me briefly take a trip into pinball because we haven't touched oh, on it yeah. um and i don't know that much about it i know that brother brian brother is a uh like let's say an 80s pop star i not of huge renown um but kind of quite as opposed to i've just discovered the pinball was his first single single it's from 1974 oh. um so Kind of on the total other hand to Mandy and Teatro Grotesco, which have this phenomenological, like atmospheric mm-hmm. sense of alienation, pinball 
does that, I suppose, lyrically. It's like, it's more straight ahead musically. Like it's kind of a straight ahead pop song, except that rather than have a chorus, it just has this looping, repeating musicality, which at one point goes into a break, like, but then the bridge just evolves into the end of the song. It's kind of, so it, it, to me, it does evoke a certain kind of madness and it can do, it can evoke that madness through lyrics as well as sound. Mm-hmm. Like it almost sounds like it's spinning. Like it sounds like there's like a record <laughs> spinning. Sure, yeah. Um, and it has these slightly abstract, but still, you can kind of, you can follow the story, but it, the lyrics are slightly abstract. So I think it, it is evoking a, similar like mandy i suppose a kind of descent into 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 madness or mm-hmm. i suppose in the case of Inbol, an ascent into madness like it is almost a derangement of a pop song yeah and like so like that's where i see i suppose the similarity there's no like explicit connection between um pinball and black metal no but like i do think that all three texts deal with this like ascent into uh, madness or this kind of breaking or layering of reality mm-hmm. yeah and I wonder is there but in pinball I guess like there isn't there isn't like a moment where you're kind of in your normal way of living and then there's like a kind of whereas I feel like in Mandy and in Teatro Grotesco there's kind of like this inciting incident almost in like every story right. uh, and in Mandy as well I don't know if that's the same I um, I'm just curious if it's the same in Pinball. I feel like it is, but I feel thing. I feel like I guess it's cyclical. But for me, I suppose after the first verse, so the first verse to be clear, the lyrics are, and I've run out of pale ales. First of all, it starts on an and, so it's just like he's stuck <laughs> in this, but like literally, and and I've run out of pale ale, and I feel like I'm in jail, and my music bores me once again. And I've been on the pinball and I no longer know at all. And they say that you never know when you're insane. And at that point, the music kind of kicks up a gear and this like right. saxophone comes in. <laughs> and it's like spends the rest of the music being like, the rest is like, no, the saxophone comes in later. But the, the, the beat comes in in a way that you're like, okay, I'm like on this ride. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because he, do, he does kind of flag it with and they say that you never know when you're insane. But you do know at that point that he's yeah. insane. Yeah. Um, and then he's like, got fleas in my bedroom, got flies in my bathroom. So it's just like suddenly yeah. <laughs> it goes into this higher gear of like, oh, this man's life has yeah. fallen apart. Yeah. So speaking of like a moment of kind of like realization, can we talk about the Cheddar Goblin? Let's, yeah. <laughs> my God. Because it's like such a small part of the film, but like is so. I don't know. I feel like it's really important. Yeah. yeah. In a lot of ways. Do you want to, yeah, do you want to like explain what it is? Yeah, so like, uh, spoilers for Mandy, which I think we've already spoiled earlier. Mandy dies. Right. Right. Yeah. She's murdered by this cult in Mm -hmm. front of Red. And so they burn her to death and then. It's it's horrible. It's, yeah, it's horrific. And actually like, I think for both of us the first time we saw it, like, that was the point at which both of us like almost walked out of the film because we were like, can't believe they've called this film yeah. after Mandy. And they were just like, you know, it's just like yeah. <sighs> another woman has died on screen to like justify this man's revenge story. Yeah. And I hate it. Yeah. Um, but then the second half of the film like kind of makes up for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But basically 
after that point and after the the cult have left and after like Red has managed to like free himself from uh it's like barbed wire he's tied up in or whatever disturbing her horrible um he like goes back inside to his house and there's this advert for mac and cheese yeah, playing on the television on the tv and it's like just this like so the, the brand is cheddar goblin yeah so the brand is cheddar goblin and like it's not a real brand it's a brand they made up for the film what yeah it's not a real what? advertisement it's an advertisement that they made specifically for the film you're blowing my mind you didn't know this no my god yeah so like my understanding is they always wanted this moment right they wanted him to walk in and like be watching some ridiculous thing on tv yeah and they were trying to find like an appropriate advert from the time yeah to to put on because like the cheddar goblin advert is very much like of the 80s yeah well you know? that's why i would totally believe yeah, it's from so the you 80s would totally believe it's a real thing but they couldn't they couldn't find one that was like really working for them and so i think the director and maybe the producer or someone else were like talking for ages and they like came up with this joke about the cheddar goblin and then they were like we're gonna have to just actually make the cheddar goblin oh my god because that's the only thing that's gonna work so they got the guy his name is casper kelly who was behind the too many cooks Do you oh remember my, that? yeah 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 so it was like this adult swim like viral video a few years ago called too many cooks the longest viral video of all time yeah it's like 15 minutes long or something yeah Maybe even longer. That again is like a pastiche, but it's like um, inspired by sitcoms, sitcom intros yeah. where there's a million characters. Yeah, so it's a it's just a sitcom intro that goes on and on and on. Yeah. It gets like more and more like weird and horrifying yeah. as it goes on. So they got that guy to make this Cheddar Goblin ad. And this ad is like viscerally disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> and so it so ties in with kind of like slime and all that kind of stuff, but it's also just like this kind of comical like interlude almost so you have yeah. this like horrible thing that's just happened to this man and like he comes back into his house and there's just like this ridiculous thing playing on the tv and so like uh the director was basically like saying that the, like the whole point of this scene is that like the universe does not give a shit about yeah. like your tragedy your or pain your feelings or like what's just happened to you. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, so he says it's like the universe slapping him in the face with its lunacy. Yeah. Which is just like extremely Ex- Thomas Ligotti. Absolutely. Like, and I just want to like, just like, I think we like have to like describe the ad in some detail. It involves yeah. this goblin that like vomits cheese. Yeah, it vomits mac and cheese. And it's just horrific like and like it's like what is it it's just like more cheddar it's like it's like it has like more cheese than the other mac and cheese brands but it's yeah. just this awful like putrid goblin that just like vomits up this mac and, and cheese what does he say he says something like oh, it's better but cheddar yeah nothing's better than cheddar or something horrible little horrible voice goblin oh voice. i'm looking at a video right now he's like vomiting all over the children yeah it's so good and you just oh. watch almost this entire ad and then you watch right like watching this ad cheese and goblins agree cheddar goblin takes the best that's why cheddar goblin was rated number one three years in a row Cheddar Goblin by Dewey. It's Goblin Good. 
and then he completely loses his mind. Yeah, then he has a total breakdown, yeah. a one shot, like multiple part breakdown. It's so good. It's yeah. I people are like laughing. I'm like, I know it is funny, but it's like it's also incredibly hard yeah. uh, to watch and I thought really accurate that it's like you like scream yeah. and then you stop and then you like have to scream again yeah. and like it's just incomprehensible you know like mm-hmm. he's just seen his girlfriend like burn alive like yeah. you know and then seeing this fucking goblin like vomiting cheddar yeah. <laughs> over <laughs> these kids um, um, there's a really good interview that we might put in the show notes with the director where he kind of talks about that they really got into like the physical um you know logic behind this goblin like does he have two stomachs and one produces mac and cheese and one or like one produces the pasta and one produces the cheese and like all this kind of stuff really in the weeds (laughs) it's like really important to get all that physical stuff right you know but yeah, I just feel like it's it's like that moment and that yeah. like exists also in like a lot of the Ligotti stories that like when he has that like intestinal yeah. issue and then it's like after that. Yeah, yeah. Because that intestinal issue comes up in, in more than one story and it's kind of like after that, it's yeah you like enter into the madness. It's kind of got that same thing. Absolutely. Every place I've ever been in my life is nothing but a place for chatter nonsense. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> shift gears right what okay. based on this discussion which i think has been really fruitful mm-hmm. um i've really enjoyed um what are we what are we gonna what are we gonna do like what are you thinking oh like i God, have ideas I but like what do you no idea so please well it's just so for me <laughs> the like the black metal the like phenomenology and the relation to music mm-hmm. seemed like a kind of a fruitful place to begin mm-hmm. and the fact that so the 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 like backing the score by uh, Johan Johansson is like it is like dark ambient but some bits of it sound like a really slowed down like guitar and I'm just like wondering I guess like when we started like what kind of entered my mind was the idea of like the circling like lick from pinball starting and then just getting slower and slower (laughs) and kind of like descending into this kind of almost like sword metal zone. spiritual awakening in America. Overwhelming majority of Americans disapprove of adultery, teenage sex, pornography, abortion, and hard drugs. 
everything you do is wrong. Ha <laughs> ha! 